0: To Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah.
0: Welcome to Belabored 188. This week, we go deep on the Chicago Teachers Union's 2019 strike, what it means for Chicago, for education unions, bargaining for the common good, and for unions generally. But first, the news. The two growth industries for unions these days seems to be media and art museums. This week we heard that Hearst Media had voted to unionize with the Writers Guild of America East, with 500 employees spread across many major magazines including Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, and Popular Mechanics. But we also learned recently what can happen in these industries when workers announce that they want a union. The Marciano Art Foundation in Los Angeles abruptly shut down, laying off its entire staff of visitor associates just days after they announced that they wanted to join the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME. The workers have filed a complaint with the NLRB and have been rallying outside the museum, which cited low attendance as its reasoning for its very convenient mass layoff. The museum was founded the March by the Marciano brothers behind the clothing company Guess, and that company has a history of dodging unionization. Over 20 years ago, they closed down production in the same city of Los Angeles after accusations of illegal labor practices. Organizer Izzy Johnson told KCRW... I think that arts labor is really viewed as a sort of privileged sector of labor, that people who are working in the arts often have college degrees or postgraduate degrees, and that somehow this is not our main source of income or is not our livelihood or is in some way we are not serious workers. I hope this is sparking a larger conversation in Los Angeles about the nature of arts labor and how it should be fairly compensated and respected. Indeed, as we get to somewhat later in the show, Arts workers and media workers have something in common besides their unionization drives. We are supposed to be laborers of love, doing our jobs, because we're creative people who are incredibly lucky to get paid at all to do work that fulfills us. Yet that often in practice means low wages and lousy working conditions. It means endless work, and it means being told over and over again to be grateful that you get to do this work at all. Johnson connected arts labor to educational labor, something we are talking about plenty today, and also to the process of unpaid internships where educational institutions are complicit in sending students to work for free and setting them up for a world of low expectations in the workplace. Regular listeners know that I'm working on a book on just this topic, but for Marciano workers, they simply want their jobs back, which they may have enjoyed or not, but they did rely on to pay
1: the bills. On November 4th, Google Workers for Action on Climate, a grassroots group representing rank-and-file Googlers, published a list of environmental and political demands for their employer, signed by more than 1,640 Google employees and addressed to the company's chief financial officer, Ruth Porat. The workers are demanding that the company reduce its carbon emissions to zero by 2030, in line with benchmarks proposed by international climate authorities. In addition, the workers are calling for, quote, zero contracts to enable or accelerate the extraction of fossil fuels in response to reports that Google and other tech giants have collaborated with oil companies to develop tools to boost their extraction operations. And they are seeking a reduction in Google's carbon footprint, along with, quote, zero funding for climate denying or delaying think tanks, lobbyists, and politicians. Finally, the workers demand, quote, "...zero collaboration with entities enabling the incarceration, surveillance, displacement, or oppression of refugees or frontline communities." Unquote. Their demands target issues that have been controversial for Google. The company had once boasted the slogan, "...don't be evil," but it's been widely condemned for its partnerships with various branches of government, including Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and Customs and Border Patrol." And in recent months, Google has come under fire for revelations about its substantial financial contributions to right-wing lobbying groups that push climate denial. Google's ethical hypocrisy is particularly alarming for employees who come from some of those underrepresented communities. Since it collaborates with the military and immigration authorities, workers accuse the company of directly harming its own employees by failing to provide quote, a diverse, inclusive, and psychologically safe workplace for all its workers, including migrants and Latinx people, the very populations. Whose communities, families, and friends are being terrorized by CBP and ICE? Unquote. That last point is also a sideways dig at Silicon Valley's overwhelming white maleness. There has been a long-standing struggle among rank-and-file tech workers at Google and beyond to make the tech industry more racially and gender diverse, and in fact. One of the initial sparks of activism at Google was an internal battle over the company's sexual harassment policies, which triggered a Me Too inspired walkout in 2018. The Google action is part of a wave of tech worker mobilizations. Hundreds of workers at Amazon, GitHub, Salesforce, Tableau, and Microsoft have launched similar campaigns protesting their respective employers' collaboration with security agencies. Notably, Amazon has faced huge public backlash for working with Palantir, the data analysis firm that helps ICE track and investigate undocumented immigrants. While these rank-and-file insurgencies may not compel big tech to completely change their business model, or whom they work with, Google workers are showing that even in the absence of a formal union, you can put cracks in Silicon Valley's carefully cultivated veneer of benevolence and progressive innovation. And they can call out their boss for serving as technicians of Washington's tyranny. It seems like we can't have a week
0: without a teacher strike, not that anyone here at Belabored is complaining. But this week's is extra exciting because it's in Little Rock, Arkansas, where teachers are taking aim at a plan to privatize and resegregate their schools. I caught up with Little Rock teacher Kimberly Crutchfield to talk about their strike plans. I apologize for a little bit of weirdness in the audio quality, but I think Kimberly's message comes through loud and clear.
2: Tomorrow, the teachers are doing a one-day strike just to kind of cause some, I guess, disruption, if you will, and to kind of let the district know that teachers are valued, and, and they need to understand that we make, you know, this system work, and um, they need us in order to you, know, to, you know, to educate the children, in order to keep the district working like it's been working for the last five years that we've been under state control, and without mm-hmm. us, you know, it all falls. So and we yeah. want to show them that my parents are behind us, our students are behind us, all my students today were like, we're not coming tomorrow. Some of them are even going to come out and take it with us. Um, so that's just basically it, and, and, you know, and we want to let them know that we will not be silent. that we want to be heard. And, and we want them to know we're not gonna, let them, you know, disenfranchise, disenfranchise the disadvantaged children in our district and to sell them mm. off. And, you know, we're not gonna go down with that.
1: That was Little Rock, Arkansas teacher, Kimberly Crutchfield. Instacart has become the digital one-stop shopping solution for all of your retail needs. The app enables customers to dispatch professional shoppers at the click of a button to do a quick grocery run and deliver it to their door. But in early November, the surrogate shopping service came to a crashing halt when thousands of workers went on strike for 72 hours. They refused to take orders through the app for three days to protest Instacart's recent changes to the way it pays shoppers. They tweaked the algorithm in a way that sharply reduced the shoppers' earnings by scrapping the default 10% tip rate. A few days after the strike, rather than sitting down to negotiate with the protesters, Instacart took an apparently retaliatory move by cutting a $3 quality bonus that experienced shoppers rely on to boost their pay. The sudden cut, which Instacart claims was not related to the strike, knocks out as much as 40% of their take-home pay. In a Medium post, the Instacart strikers accuse the company of foul play. Quote, This is clearly a retaliatory act. The company has made its intentions known. They do not seek to work with us or even attempt to compromise. This is corporate cruelty, plain and simple, with no other explanation. Their only goal was to hurt us. To say we are disappointed in Instacart's juvenile and vindictive response would be an understatement but we are not surprised. We are not giving up and have not lost sight of what we want, a return to fair pay, the assurance, our tips are not being stolen, and a feeling of personal dignity when we tell people we shop for Instacart. Instacart, for its part, claimed it was cutting that quality bonus due to quality concerns. A spokesperson told Vice that the company believed the quality bonus, quote, did not meaningfully improve quality, and decided to cancel it. Hmm, because there's nothing like a 40% pay cut to incentivize workers to boost the quality of their work. The Instacart revolt parallels a number of other direct actions we've seen among platform-based gig economy workers, including the Uber Lyft strikes earlier this year, and before that, a pan-European strike wave by Deliveroo Couriers. See past episodes of Belabored on both of those actions. Though these might be seen as relatively informal industrial actions, they have had a ripple effect across the gig economy, inspiring both workers and consumers to rally in solidarity. The Instacart boycott sparked a flurry of social media backlash, not just from labor activists, but from clients of the app as well. So apparently, both customers and shoppers seem to recognize the real value of their service, even if the Instacart executives do not. Vanessa Bain is an Instacart shopper and a striker.
3: So I think that the strike was definitely... Way better than than we could have ever even anticipated, you know. I think it made an impact on their operations, but I think it also made a you know an even greater impact on like the narrative around Instacart, right? Instacart has largely been a company that's flown under the radar, um, while a lot of the um, anger and agitation has been focused more directly on like Lyft, Uber, and the rideshare dynamic of it. But I think that you know, obviously, uh, Instacart is not not actually in a league of their own. I think they're very, very similar to, to Lyft and Uber in, in many ways. Um, and one of the, one of the, you know, worst is that they have a really terrible track record with their employees. And well, you know, they call us contractors. Um, I'm, I'll just call us employees because that's what we are. So I think, like in terms of the dynamics, I think that it really helps to uh, sort of like reframe that narrative. And I think that it was an excellent, like, experience in building solidarity. And I was very happy (laughs) Um, at the end of it. I felt very joyous. And a lot of our organizers were feeling the same way. Um, Unfortunately, that was (laughs) short-lived. Very shortly after the the strike had, had ended, we were met with yet another pay cut. And um, so far, that's really been the only response that Instacart's had to to um, our organizing and 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 this round of organizing in particular was to retaliate against us. What are your next steps? So I think that, you know, right now we're trying to continue to, um, like, maintain the momentum of um, this, like, sporadic uh, customer protests that that sort of happened very organically and very beautifully, where, you know, customers reading about our experiences and our history of grievance with the company have been just phenomenal and started their own boycott of Instacart, right? We also are planning another another action, um, because we still need to drive through uh, the message that that our demands are going to be met. And I think that, you know, we have a lot of momentum, and we've gained a lot of traction in this round of organizing, and we're just trying to continue to build upon that.
1: That was Instacart striker Vanessa Bain. As we noted in our last episode, Chicago Teachers Union recently ended its 11-day strike and inked a new tentative contract, which is now being voted on by members. Many of their major demands for more counselors and nurses at schools were met, building on some of the gains from their breakthrough strike in 2012. But there's still much work to be done to fulfill the union's vision for a more inclusive democratic education system. We caught up with CTU teacher and organizer Kenzo Shibata and education scholar Lois Weiner to talk about what the recent wave of teacher strikes means for the labor movement and the role of public sector union activism in rejuvenating a labor movement that has seen a steady decline in political influence. Kenzo, why don't you explain what was one with this contract and I guess along with that uh, why don't you talk about what you think might have been the biggest concession or maybe thing that you did not achieve that you had hoped to achieve in the bargaining process.
4: I think uh, the crowning achievement definitely the fact that you know within five years every school is going to have a nurse and a social worker uh, which is something that um, in my career in CPS I haven't seen like many schools uh, share as a nurse um, with multiple other schools, three, four other schools. So sometimes schools will only have a nurse one day a week. If a kid has an emergency, um, then you have to have a clerk, take out an EpiPen or, uh, insulin. Um, so it's really, it was really, we really have have unsafe conditions because of that, um, that and a social worker, considering like we have so much trauma in our schools. I think that, um, was also, Uh, An incredible win. Uh, We also had uh, a big win for schools that have high numbers of students in temporary learning situations, living situations, uh, homeless students, where now um, a stipend will be given to the school for the additional resources they need. And the board is going to hire um, workers who are going to follow up with these students and, you know, making sure that they have everything that they need and that they're able to, you know, attend school. Um, So huge, um, you know, groundbreaking historical wins in that respect Uh, one of the things that I I was hoping we'd be able to get is a uh, 30 minute prep time uh, for elementary school teachers. Um, It was for some reason, a real sticking point for the mayor um, who like, it's very obvious she has never taught because she thinks that lesson plans must come out of the sky. Like, Teachers, elementary teachers for years had this 30-minute prep time where they were able to meet with parents, grade papers, write lessons, do everything they need to do outside of the classroom or as much as they could in 30 minutes at least um, until uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel extended the school day um, based upon you know, basically false talking points about how other schools are run, and he took that away. Um, So this was something that, you know, I feel like it was almost an ego thing on the part of our current mayor that she didn't want to have to give up something that uh, Rom got in in this contract. So that was a big disappointment. Our elementary school teachers are overworked. um, And uh, next time uh, we're going to we're going to get that for them. How
1: would you compare this strike with the strike of 2012? Um, You were obviously there for both. Um, did it feel different? Um, did do you have a different set of insights uh, in terms of what to expect going into this one?
4: Well, one of the things that was really interesting about 2012 was that was, you know, us building, you know, the union um, using, you know, through the, via the, the strike campaign, or I should say via the contract campaign. Like when uh, we first took office in 2010, um, we immediately put together a team, of uh, rank and file members that would later become this big bargaining team of about forty rank and file members that would be involved in negotiations, um, and really their first task was when Rama Manuel um, took away our uh, contractual raises one year because there was a uh, a part of our contract that allowed him to do that. Um, you know that team had to you know immediately start uh, working towards negotiating what that would look like. Um, and, um, you know, fighting the boss. And, uh, you know, even before we took office in 2008, when we were just core, we were building bridges with community organizations. Um, so, you know, we were by 2012, we were still kind of building the plane as we we're flying it. And um, we were able to forge some really important relationships. We got to see, you know, people for the who they really were. And um, this particular strike, it's like we had a lot of our systems in place and we were able to just launch them. And, uh, you know, one of the big differences is just the political landscape in Chicago between 2012 and 2019 is just so different. You know, back then we had a handful of aldermen, uh, members of city council, maybe maybe five or so that were on our side out of 50. And this time we had 30 plus um, aldermen sign on to this letter of support for the union. Clearly, um, we moved things. You know, we have six socialist aldermen um, that the DSA and the United Working Families Um, got elected, and um, we were able to move city council to be more supportive. And, like, really it was a a small minority that were against the strike. Um, And, you know, having said that, you know, the DSA in Chicago now has 2,000 members and launched this amazing program that raised about $50,000 called Bread for Ed, which fed teachers and students on the strike line. Um, They also – or we also um, gave strike support – on the line to several schools that we adopted. Uh, And then we have United Working Families that not only do they run um, socialist candidates, but they also run progressives that aren't quite socialists, but have been very supportive of us. Like my particular alderman, Matt Martin, shout out, um, was extremely supportive of us. He's not a socialist, but he's someone who's now he's a left liberal kind of living in this ecosystem where socialism has currency. So um, it's really incredible to see how many people stepped up and supported us this time around.
1: And the school support workers were out on strike with you. Is that different from 2012 as well?
4: Yeah, they uh, had a deal uh, before we did, and they crossed the line. Um, and to no fault of the workers, uh, they had, um, you know, they had a bad leadership at the time, and they weren't doing. It wasn't an organizing union. Um, there wasn't. Um, there wasn't anything beyond just you know sending your table team to negotiate. Um, but, you know, for seven years, we built these alliances. They have uh, stronger leaders now. And, um, you know, we saw that as something that we had to we had to come together and do. And one of the great educational experiences, I think, for a lot of workers uh, during this strike was the fact that, you know, we need the special ed um, classroom assistants, the SICAs who are in 73, the security guards, uh, bus bus aides, you know, they're very crucial to the school. And it was like you'd go to a strike line and I didn't see the kind of divisions I used to see, that I'm used to seeing at least, between um, paraprofessionals and, and teachers. Um, so I think that that alliance was very strong and powerful. And I'm definitely seeing this kind of solidarity carry out into the classroom now.
1: So with this strike, did you feel like you um, were perhaps addressing some things that had been unresolved since the last strike? Or um, do you – and I guess in in, in... – terms of looking at the future, um, since, you know, obviously striking is a last resort and, um, you know, teachers (laughs) generally, I mean, would rather be in the classroom. Um, Do you feel like there have been issues that maybe you're going to keep fighting for that may lead you to um, engage in a strike, you know, further down the
4: line? Well, in this strike, I would say that, you know, we weren't just, um, you know, fixing mistakes from 2012 or fixing, you know, holes in our contract, we're actually fixing some real historical um, inequalities and inequities that were involved in in the system. Like in Chicago right now, there's very little incentive for people to coach sports. The pay is low. And uh, if you go out to the suburbs or even downstate uh, coaches are treated like it's a second part-time job. Um, They're, they're paid well. uh, Their money is pensionable And um, and frankly, like, you know, we could be young, idealistic teachers, but also it gets to the point where you're raising a family and you have to support them. And every minute you're not spending with your own family um, should be compensated, I think. Um, So we have not gotten a raise for our coaches in 30 years. And we got that in this contract. Um, Another thing that we got in this contract for the first time in my recollection uh, is actual class size caps. Um, We've had. A, an advised class size um, levels before where um, we had a committee that would come in make recommendations if a school had too many oversized classrooms but their advice was um, not they had no teeth to it there um, there was wasn't enforceable at all so now what we have is you know we have that system we still have in place so um, you know class sizes in some in some cases are like 28 29 um, and then if it goes above that, then, you know, it'll go to this, this advisement committee, but now we also have some hard caps. So, you know, we can't, the schools can't just overfill, like, you know, they can't just say, oh, well, this is an overcrowded classroom, you know, regardless of if it's three kids or 20 kids additional in the class. Um, so like there are some hard caps now where once uh, certain class sizes hit a certain threshold, the school system has to hire more teachers or teachers aides um, to ensure that there are enough adults in the building. Um, so that's huge. And like, you know, like I said before, like you know we need, we're gonna come back next time and we're gonna fight to get those caps lowered. Um, but right now, we at least have like a safety net at this point. You know, we had uh, one member of our bargaining team who was talking about in her kindergarten class that she taught last year, forty kids. And you know, this is going to give amazing relief to a lot of the South and the west side schools where most of the black and brown students go. Um, that have these oversized classrooms. So we definitely saw um, this as reversing, or at least you know the beginning of reversing some of these racist policies in Chicago.
5: So I wanted to ask you both, but maybe since uh, Lois hasn't spoken yet, um, <laughs> we'd love to have you both talk about the importance of the CTU and of the core caucus to all the changes that we've seen in teacher unions over the past decade. Because I think, you know, there's been a lot of this narrative that everything started in 2018 in West Virginia and we all on this call know that's not true.
6: I think that since 2012, we've seen nationally a deterioration in teachers' working conditions, um, mm-hmm. an intensification of um, of their work, loss of autonomy, uh, the crush of testing The fact that, especially in cities, schools have to deal with the ravages of the neoliberal project, you know, the way Mm -hmm. it's devastated neighborhoods. And that has made teachers' work much more difficult, much more intense. And um, I think that what this uh, contract campaign represented, the other thing that we've seen since 2012 is a shift in power relations, Mm -hmm. that more... That the um, more authority is held by the bosses, it's a a mirror, you know, of what what has gone on within labor and within uh, at the workplace generally under capitalism. And what this strike represented was first and foremost a defense of kids' psychosocial needs these were contract demands that really focused on the nature of work in the schools. And that's the reason that Stacy Davis Gates referred to it as being not sexy because it's, it sounds like minutiae, but it's not minutia. It's about power. It's about yeah. who controls the nature of what goes on in the workplace. And in this contract, the CTU said to the ruling class workers, Workers along with parents and students are going to control what goes on in the schools as reflected in our working conditions, and they use the contract. I think they use the contract campaign brilliantly to do that, and it's something that nobody else has done to the extent that TTU has done it. And I think part of the reason that the, the TTU was able to do it is that Core was able to rejuvenate itself. There were internal divisions mm-hmm. within Core, contestations about, uh, you know, tensions between the rank and file and the leadership because the leadership, after all, represents Core. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the caucus one. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the demands reflected pressure that Core transmitted, uh, that Core conveyed and mobilized on to. Mm-hmm. Rebuild the union. Mm -hmm. And one of the most significant things that I think that everybody should learn from is the fact that in this contract campaign, which I think started late, that nonetheless, the union was able to recruit 3,000 new members. Uh, That's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary Mm -hmm. statistic.
4: In the post-Janus world.
6: (laughs) Yes. And And we'll get to Janus. Don't worry. In in four months. In four months, we're mm-hmm. talking about. So what that means, it means two things. First of all, it means that there was a decline in the union's organizing potential and capacity in the schools. And I think that's understandable because it didn't, I think nobody could anticipate the power of, the, of uh, Emmanuel's response to the victories in the strike, which were those mm-hmm. school closings and the victimization mm-hmm. of activists. And we have to understand that that's what happens in this. When we win something, we're always attacked. I think the strike is a milestone because it demonstrates that organizing the school at the base and union democracy are the key components of a successful pushback of labor. I I, Mm -hmm. I think that's what it represents. The other thing I want to question, though, and I want to put this out there, I want to put out there the fact that it was a very long strike. And I think that it's incumbent on those of us who are friends of the Union, which I am, to really push on an explanation, uh, some, an exploration of why it was that this strike last, lasted so long. Uh, and I think that, um, uh, I think that um, the fact that there were five days made up, but not all of the days made up, means that some of these gains are being paid for by teachers' lost wages. And people know that. People know that in a long strike. And so um, I, I think that while the electoral victories are important, they were also insufficient to force Lightfoot to settle the strike uh, fast. And I think that that's, um, uh, that's, that's an issue, that um, uh, we need to uh, explore honestly um, and frankly and objectively, um, but at, at the same time, I just want to reiterate that this was this was a really extraordinary um, milestone because the previous strikes and the previous walkouts have not focused on conditions in the schools. The last thing I want to say, and Kenzo didn't uh, mention this, I think one of the big big gains was that the union put on the table the evaluation procedures for teachers. And mm-hmm. I want to say that throughout this country there's a reign of terror in schools because administrators have so much power and contracts are so weak and the legal protections have been weakened for teachers' unions. Uh, in the evaluation process where administrators come in and say whether a teacher is good or not and the union w- won not everything it wanted but the union won significant victories on that and that's mm. extraordinary and because that has not occurred to my knowledge in any of the other strikes that have occurred mm. that that have um, that have taken place and it's I mean I just think the core and the CTU are just uh, engaged in this spectacular uh, experiment about what militant democratic unions can accomplish in the face of, you know, uh, an onslaught from the ruling class. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
5: Kenzo, can you follow up with that? And just, you know, take us back a little bit to the beginnings of CORE. You were part of the founding of CORE, and then you were in staff during the last strike.
4: So, yeah, basically uh, CORE... Uh, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. Uh, we were a militant caucus within the CTU that formed in 2008. We we kind of started in 2007, but we didn't have a name. And we weren't so official until about 2008 um, with, with, you know, with the express purpose of um, fighting school closings. I um, mean, you know, we of course had a bigger picture analysis there too, but that was the main focus that we had because it was um, something that was happening very rapidly and in uh, the union leadership at the time was doing very little, if nothing at all, to, to stem the, the closings. And from there, uh, we won our first election, um, which got uh, Karen Lewis elected as the president of the CTU in 2010. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail, but we um, some really good old school organizing got us to win and also a huge political opening when the ruling caucus uh, split three ways. Um, so that's something I, I've been preaching a lot to people lately is like, don't don't shy away from politics because you have to play them sometimes to 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 do good. Um, so we found that opening. Uh, we won and um we took office and then we immediately started organizing for um our, our first contact in in 2012. Um, but what the thing that's really cool about core is that you know, the foundation of core is really what's kept CTU um In a way, like, you know, on track, like, even though, like Lois was saying earlier, there have been some visions um, and there has been some acrimony. Um, We basically come from the values of, you know, free public education, high quality for every single student um, and union democracy. Those are like the two main things. Of course, there's a lot that that goes into both of those things. Um, So that, you know, is the impetus really for this 40 member bargaining team. Um, okay. you know actually this this time around we proposed a few other things because we were in a situation where the, the mayor wasn't showing up to negotiations neither was the head of the schools who is the ceo in our in our district basically uh, the, the mayor was putting out sound bites in the press about right. us lying about us saying um you know thing that you know we were holding up negotiations that you know she through the Through the media, they were saying a lot about our leaders not showing up, which is not true at all. Like you know we could verify they were there. Um, so you know that forty member bargaining team um, all represents different um, members different types of members in CTU. So we have teachers, librarians, clinicians, um also different generations of teachers, different races. Um it's a very diverse team that really does reflect our membership. And uh, we're there to make sure that the contract is um, still tracking with the teachers. Like it's it's really difficult in negotiations sometimes when you have you know this is what traditional negotiations looks like. You have uh, a table team of maybe five to eight people where they're like union officers and lawyers, mm-hmm. and then the other side you have uh, the board um, appointees. And, um, sometimes it's, uh, there are side conversations just between the top executives where things, you know, the, um, the president and the superintendent, and that's where things get done. And then things are then shared with the team. Um, that's not the case, you know, with our 40 member bargaining team, like it was, you know, we're, democratic almost to a fault like we came together and we looked at the proposals um, that the board was giving us we reviewed them very very rapidly sometimes like overnight we would do the studying uh and then come back with our counter proposals the next day um all grounded in like what's actually happening in our classrooms um so that was something that definitely i think we carried over from um that core value that we have Mm. and um there was you know definitely some some acrimony some divisions between Um, within core, I'd say going into negotiations, a lot of those um, kind of melted away because when we're all focused and we're all like, you know, targeted at the boss and we have um, a plan, um, there's really, you know, you have to work together. That's, That's just how solidarity works.
5: Following up from that is sort of after the 2012 strike, we saw a surge in this style of, you know, reform caucuses taking power or challenging for power Um, and bringing forward these same issues. And so I know that, you know, core members have been an active part of that. So I'd love for you to talk about like, both of you, like the the reach outside of Chicago of this particular union and its strategies and how those have spread in the interim period between the two strikes.
6: I think that core is still singular. And I think that it inspired uh, a hopefulness and uh, an energy that hadn't been present before in um, both uh, the NEA and the AFT. There's no doubt about that. And you know, you just had this—you've had this widespread um, creation of rank-and-file caucuses. I'm I'm really looking forward to the Caucus of Working Educators winning the election mm-hmm. in Philly. And I was just in um, Baltimore. And met with some people from Be More. I think actually that we're the, the the movement is quite mature within the blue states in places where there's mm-hmm. collective bargaining. And um, as in this state of maturity, I think that there are some real challenges, and that's part of the reason that uh, CORE and the CTU are so important. And I think one of the challenges is the challenge of maintaining of Number one, maintaining the caucus once you're at the leadership. And the mm-hmm. other challenge is not sacrificing union democracy for mobilization. There's always the pressure. There are always conservatizing pressures on a union leadership. It doesn't make any difference what your political principles are. There are conservatizing, centralizing pressures. And I think that we're seeing those centralizing pressures Predominate in places where there were not strong caucuses when progressive leadership won. the other thing, other pro- I'm always looking at both the you know the problems that we face. I sort of feel like an mm-hmm. overprotective mother here. Um, both, <laughs> of, both of the wonderful successes <laughs> that um, that people have had in transforming the unions in really in in bringing social justice rhetoric and and policies, you know, and and contract demands into the struggles and in forging important alliances with communities of color, low-income communities of color, black and Hispanic in particular. Uh, I think that work is just phenomenally important and singular. At the same time, we have the job of transforming both national unions Uh, which are still um, sclerotic and undemocratic. Uh, So we're in the new stage now. And, of course, the red state walkouts are yet another wave of this. And I think it's important, uh, as you started off in the show in mentioning, that the red state walkouts really built on a momentum that CORE and the CTU began. They didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, they built on, you know, they built on that momentum. Yeah, Kenzo
4: I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the type of thing that you know, it has been tried to be replicated, um, and um, it, it really hasn't so much taken form yet. Um, the idea of a caucus, like, um, and I like what Lois was saying about how there's like the conservatizing factors uh, in leadership that re- requires there being a strong caucus. The thing about core is that, um, we get into some knockdown drag, drag, drag out fights. Like it happens sometimes. And I'll say sometimes it's not even healthy. You know, I'll just be very blunt about that. You know, and sometimes, you know, we, we stray into that territory of, um, of just being very angry at each other. And, um, but at the same time, like when we do have these singular goals, um, we're able to, to work together and, um, you know, bring bring everything that everyone has to the table like you know some of the tensions in core are actually very good um right. as they do force not just leadership to be um you know more accountable but they also kind of force rank and file members to be more accountable to each other as well so sometimes you know you'll over like the course of negotiations you see yelling and crying and laughing and singing and hugging and you know the whole gamut of emotions um, and like that all on display, definitely, uh, during our, our contract negotiations, but, uh, yeah, definitely I would recommend like, you know, have a strong caucus, build the caucus. Um, we just happened to be very lucky. I think with, uh, the split in leadership when we were running for office where we won before we even really expected to, <laughs> like we, I remember the, the common conversation was, uh, maybe in two cycles we'll win you know, a few more of the UPC people, the ruling caucus will retire. Um, so when we actually won and it fell in our laps, um, we didn't quite have all the caucus building done that we should have. And that was that was something that I would definitely advise future groups is, you know, continue building the caucus, you know, build a culture in the caucus that is separate from um, the leadership, separate from um, anything that's like, a, you know, an actual structure within the union. It's
1: independent. Mm -hmm. It's independent, yeah. Lois, you talked about the role of this latest wave of teacher strikes as kind of a broad-based form of community-wide mobilization. Do you see a through line between um, the teacher strikes that we're seeing in different school districts around the country and the growing sense of militancy among public sector workers globally. Overall, like what is the role of teachers as, um, as public sector workers and how do they fit into that broader landscape?
6: Well, you know, our discussion so far has really been global north centric. I want to say that. And um, I'm going to add to that by saying that, that you know, there's going to be a strike uh, in the UK of higher ed faculty. And mm-hmm. I um, was doing a lot of international work in Europe, uh... shortly after the ctu strike and i have to tell you it electrified people all over the world but for different reasons it electrified teachers in um, europe because they identified with um, the conditions uh... and because they really felt that um, public employee unions and teachers unions had been so weakened by the neoliberal project but it excited teachers in the Global South for a different reason, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that we are in the belly of the beast here in the United States mm-hmm. in terms of imperial power, control of the World Bank and international finance um, institutions that um, really have, have subordinated many countries in the Global South to a, um, a colonial status, and uh, their educational systems have been wrecked uh, by the reforms that have been imposed on them. And so uh, from the perspective of people in the global south, uh, activists in the global south, our struggles here are a ray of hope to them about um, weakening the power uh, of, the, um, uh, of, the, uh, of the ruling class to which they're enthralled really, and um so I just want to bring that in that this is mm-hmm. it, it's not just it's not just Europe that we're talking about when we yeah. talk about this it's also the global south and in a global a globalized economy we need to have a mm-hmm. we need to have that um, that perspective but I, I I think that there's no underestimating the effect that the CTU and core um, have had on altering perceptions of uh, the way to resist. First of all, the possibility of resisting the neoliberal project and um, using labor's traditional strategies, but doing it in alliance with um, so-called social with social justice groups. I use the word social justice group. Uh, I, I almost feel like I should put it in quotes because. The defense of workers' dignity is a social justice demand, right? Right. (laughs) So unions are, Mm -hmm. are, you know, it's a social justice demand. So I'll say uh, in alliance with communities that are fighting social oppression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. And we're seeing those tensions within unions globally. Uh, Mm -hmm. And look, look at what's going on in South Africa. Uh, You know, there are are these same tensions there between the organized labor movement and, you know, community groups. So these are not problems that are unique to the United States, uh, Mm -hmm. nor are they unique to Chicago. And Kenzo, how many people were in core when you won leadership of the CTU?
4: I I would say about 100, really.
6: 100. I want Mm -hmm. us to think about that. I just want us to think about that. That that is a staggering fact mm-hmm. that shows the um, the explosive potential of uh, organizing.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we were at one hundred, and then we we're about two hundred right after we had won.
6: There we go. Yeah, talk yeah, about absolutely. changing the world, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about leveraging the power of unions. That, uh-huh. to me, yeah. is what's so extraordinary. Leveraging, yeah. it's not just an idea whose time had come. It was leveraging the potential power of unions, which has really been neglected and forgotten.
5: One of the things that's different in these sort of red states, as you're saying, is that in a lot of these places, these are unions that are barely existent, mm-hmm. right? That these strike waves in a lot of way, uh, these strikes in a lot of the sort of, you know, so-called red for red states, Um are coming not because there's been a process of reforming the union, but sort of organizing outside of the yes, union in, in yes, a certain ways. And, yes, and so I'd yes. love for you both of you actually to you know talk about sort of the difference of that and what um what difference it makes to sort of have a union that you can take over the the processes of versus having the sort of rebuild from scratch.
6: Well, I, I, let me jump in here. I'm really yeah, yeah. interested in what's going on in with, like, the Kickstarter workers and the mm. um, mm-hmm. Google workers, and I think that what we're seeing isn't it, – it's really a critical moment for people who, who support um, labor rights to understand right. that the contract and contract unionism uh, can be a trap. They can be a trap, and they can actually now, especially because of uh, uh, limitations in labor law, they can mm-hmm. actually inhibit organizing. Mm. You and know the
5: Trump and LRB.
6: Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. And this has actually been a discussion among um, uh, labor historians for a long time, at least for mm-hmm. fifteen years, about mm. whether labor law was really so restrictive. We just wanted to get rid of it. What the red state walkouts. Are showing because the unions there were really uh, shells. They represented yeah. not even not even two digits, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, they the organizing occurred outside of the unions because the unions weren't doing what they should. Frankly, right. that's mm-hmm. the reason it occurred, and I think we have to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that what it shows is that it shows the 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 potential power of these labor strategies and labor tactics that we have associated purely in our lifetime with unions,
0: mm-hmm. but that
6: were not always associated just with the unions, there's a long history of, for instance, organizing by the IWW. IWW mm-hmm. wasn't affiliated with the AF of L, was it? So mm-hmm. there's a history in labor of syndicalism as well. And I think that the Red for Ed walkouts um, and what we're seeing from uh, Google – and uh, other workers in tech industries are actually closer to that history of syndicalism. And that's partly mm-hmm. because of the weakened natures of, of the unions. And I want to say the sclerotic uh, hold of the, um, the calcification of the unions. And I think that was seen it's such a contrast if you look at the CTU strike and their demands and what went on with the UAW. Right, you're anticipating all of my questions. I'm sorry.
5: Mm. <laughs> no, it's fine. We'll go back no. but I do plan on asking more about the UAW in a bit. So yeah, yeah, we no, but
6: I think that that's that. just you know, like they didn't say anything about the Green New Deal. How can they not say anything about the Green New Deal? We have to look at the fact that fewer, less than seven percent of all workers in the private sector are in unions. Well. Hello, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means that and the activity means that people need these protections and they want these protections, and in fact, there is a nascent labor consciousness that the unions have been unable to use mm-hmm. in organizing, and that's the question why?
1: Lois, if I could take you back even further uh, beyond twenty twelve um back to your experience as a public school teacher, um you taught in California and um, New York, and I other did. places. Can you talk about what it was like to organize as an educator back then versus um, what you're observing now? Um, Are there any notable contrasts? Is it a different political milieu, or do you feel like there were positives and negatives of either of those eras?
6: Well, when I became a teacher, uh, teachers in California didn't yet have collective bargaining. California was one of the last states where teachers won collective bargaining. So we actually negotiated memoranda of understanding without collective bargaining laws. So in that respect, we were closer to um, Wisconsin today than we are to uh, what exists. And there are ways in which not having a union contract helped us. I'm just going to say that. And I think that what Stanley Aronowitz wrote about contract unionism and no strike clauses in contracts was exactly right. And we're seeing that right now, that when people unionize and they sign a contract that has a no-strike clause and something terrible happens, they're powerless to do anything about it, or in New York State where we have the Taylor Law. So I think in some ways it's easier to organize without uh, collective bargaining, but I think in other ways it's harder. And I think that the other thing that people, when we talk about unions – we often don't talk about the sector, and the sector mm-hmm. makes a very, very big difference when we when we discuss, when we think about how to organize. And of course, for teachers' unions, the sector is education, and most often mm-hmm. public education. And what that means is that we're face-to-face in public education, and public sector unions with uh, uh, with challenges that don't exist in the private sector, you know you're you're supposed to be serving the public directly. Yes. So that yes. means that social justice demands have to be put on the table, I think, in public sector unions uh, yesterday. And I think actually uh, the private sector has something to learn from that. So the union in in the the uh, fifteen years, that I was a teacher, I saw the union's power decline to the point that when the neoliberal project began, it was totally the the, the teacher union movement was totally uh, let me put this nicely snookered by the project, and <laughs> uh-huh. they collapsed. They absolutely collapsed. They surrendered. They were afraid to fight on issues of principle like teacher tenure, curriculum control of curriculum standardized testing Um, they refused to fight and conditions deteriorated so conditions deteriorated in the last 30 years in american public schools and i i lay part of that responsibility at the feet of the unions for not resisting in the way they needed to
4: and another bonus about like bargaining for common good demands is that the bosses all don't anticipating don't, everything
6: I'm going to say. It's
5: great.
4: <laughs> the the bosses guys, don't even know we're how to deal. we you with
5: out them. of a job. <laughs> it's great, it's you guys really. can just keep talking to each other. That's a really good point, though, that the bosses don't anticipate it
4: coming. Mm-hmm. And in Chicago, like it was a messaging point for the mayor. Like we were bargaining for, um, you know. Tempor- you know students in temporary learning conditions, living situations, but also for yeah. teacher housing, because Chicago is becoming such an expensive place yeah. to live. And right. we have a policy, which I actually think is a good policy, that we have to be residents of the city to teach here, mm-hmm. but it's right. becoming harder and harder for people. And the mayor was just, she used that as a talking point. She said, well, the union is slowing things down because they're putting everything in the contract under the sun that has nothing to do with the school, which gave us a great messaging opportunity to put out there like, actually, students that are homeless have a hard time learning. If they're, you know, food insecure, they're not going to have a, you know, easy time learning if there's abuse, if there's trauma. Like, so we, it, it forced a really important conversation and she kind of dropped mm-hmm. it because I don't think she had a response to it because, yeah. you know, certainly, you know, she doesn't think that it's something she should be bargaining with in a teacher contract, but like, why would she be against affordable housing for teachers? Like, you she know, still has to take that position.
2: I, I
6: just want to say, I'm glad Kenzo raised this issue about public employees living in the cities, because you know most public employee unions oppose that legislative change. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge in retrospect that that was a a very big mistake for the unions to oppose that Mm -hmm. Uh, and that it actually weakened the unions, that the unions said that they were defending their members' interests by allowing mm-hmm. them to live in the suburbs and commute, right. all the public yeah. employees, right? They said because of their thinking that their members' best interests could be somehow separated from what was good f- for the communities that they were serving.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
6: And so that idea now, CORE and CTU have completely turned that around By and and are actually doing what public employee unions should have done 30 years ago when the civil rights movement demanded that public employees live in the city Mm because that was a demand of communities of color. And the Mm -hmm. public employee unions opposed it.
5: So thinking about that, it's not that surprising that this bargaining for the common good strategy was really pioneered by a union that does have to live in the city that it, it works in.
6: Yeah, I think that that's very true. And the other thing that I think that we need to put on the table, and as I said, and if we're honest here, is that there are, there are going to be tensions within unions, especially public employee unions, about how we define members'
5: interests, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: right? Not everybody, not every teacher in the Chicago public schools or any public school system supports Black Lives Matter in schools, That's a contested issue within the union. And I think that one of the ways that the CTU has shown us that those issues, we move on those issues, is by defending members aggressively and militantly and explicitly, defending members' interests in the workplace as workers at the same time that we advocate for social justice demands Mm -hmm. for the broader community. That, to me, is
5: another lesson here. And following up on both of those things, both of you have written about the importance of taking race and gender into account mm-hmm. when talking about teacher unions. Um, Lois, I was just quoting you in my book on the same subject.
6: Um, so, Flattery um, will get you everywhere. <laughs> I, you know, I,
5: I literally was like looking at these notes while working on um, questions for this podcast. I was like, oh, right, yes, that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I would love for both of you to talk about the importance of this Um, of taking these issues into account when you are thinking about what the union can bargain for and how the union itself is composed?
6: Well, let, let me jump in and give a fast answer, and then I'll let Kenzo take it, since he has firsthand experience that I don't. I think that union democracy is key to addressing those tensions. I'm very concerned when unions adopt aggressive, radical Social justice demands, bargaining for the common good, that are not matched by a rank and file strategy that's building the union and the base. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. I think that what happens if that occurs is that people begin to feel that the union leadership feels more about, um, cares more about social justice that is not them, you know, Mm -hmm. other people outside the union, than Mm -hmm. they care about them. And that the place uh, the place that those tensions, assuming that the uh, the union is doing what it should, to build its base in the schools, so that people are um, understand the contract, so that they defend it, so that the principles of solidarity are reinforced. It's very, very hard work to do that. But assuming the union does that, Then there has to also be a space in the union, whether it's a delegate assembly, whether there are conferences, where people debate these um, political positions that the Mm -hmm. union takes. And I think a union leadership has to be willing to step back. And that's another thing that makes me admire the CTU so much is um, the way that they handled a division within the union about standardized testing. Some people went out. Uh, boycotted the tests, the union wasn't in a position where it could say, we support the boycott because not all the members did support the boycott, Mm -hmm. right? There was an agreement about standardized testing. So the union, as a union, took a step back and there was debate within the union about standardized testing, political education, and eventually the union, not so long, the union took a position. So I think that was actually a model uh, of how to negotiate that but it occurred because it was a union leadership that really respected democracy and was committed to building the union and the base
4: so yeah definitely um leadership can't be too far ahead of members on things oh. um because of that then you know that that leads to that disconnect um what um you know a well-organized building is good because not only um are they like you know apprised of what leadership you know, of leadership's direction, but they're actually helping drive it, Um, which, you know, we saw this contract campaign uh, particularly um, was interesting. From the very beginning, we were soliciting um, contract proposals from every single member in the city. Like anyone could submit one. We had an online process for doing that. Uh, We narrowed it down from there. Um, We as a bargaining team then combed through them, looked for commonalities and looked for like, you know, what direction we go forward. And then there was communication, then back to membership about, you know, what direction we wanted to take these contract proposals. And I'm someone who like, you know, I was a union staffer for a few years. I worked for the uh, CTU for a while and then the Illinois Federation of Teachers. Um, And that second job I had, it took me around the state a lot. And I I saw a lot of union negotiations. And for CTU to be able to not only have a democratic process throughout negotiations, but then... um, also to like do that considering you know we have 25,000 members and then a 40-member bargaining team was like really a sight to behold uh jen johnson who's the current uh chief of staff of ctu she led a lot of that work uh behind the scenes um with you know getting us to do um exercises that would get um that would help us focus on contract proposals um, and specific, like, you know, matching certain values we have to certain demands we can put into a contract. Um, it was really a sight to behold, and that in and of itself, I think, you know, a book could be written about.
6: Just Let me just uh, jump in and say something about gender here. Yeah. Um, and it has to do with the sector, and of course, uh, teaching mm-hmm. is women's work. Uh, when I say that these demands uh, and this contract, They were about protection of kids' psychosocial Mm well-being. That's what they were about. Now, that that's women's work in the family, and that's women's work in our society. You know, people who are aides in hospitals and, you know, or or in nursing homes, it's women doing that Mm -hmm. work of of caring, uh, uh, care work. So, although the union did not name this as women's work, although the union did not put explicitly say this is women's work. It was. It was a defense of women's work. And so I think that the next step for us uh, in the labor movement is to name this, to mm. name to name these struggles as being uh, women's work. And uh, the same thing is true about naming systemic racism in public education. And I think the historic complicity of unions and, and teachers' unions uh, in, in uh, you know, what's called racialized capitalism. Mm. And mm. Um, it's very difficult to do that, to, to name that in a way that's acceptable to people who don't see it that way. And mm. I think that you can make a good argument that in actually fighting for those demands that the CTU did or any union did does, counselors, yeah. right, counselors mm-hmm. and social workers, what is that? You know, yeah. that's care work, right, special right. ed, yeah. you know. Yeah. By fighting for those things, I think that the union um, sets out a stake, a new stake in the ground, and then it's up to the rest of us who are friends of labor to articulate how that Mm -hmm. stake in the ground is advancing struggles for social equality. So the the unions can't always do that. It's up to those of us who are friends of unions, on the left especially, socialists, to do that kind of analysis and to put it out there so that it becomes part of the narrative.
1: So I guess just to pull back a little bit, um, I wanted to ask about... The role of the Trump administration in Washington um, in you know public sec- or um, public school teacher activism today. I mean, it, you know, I, I'm just thinking about the way the Obama administration was so tied to um, mm-hmm. sort of neoliberal school reform, um, you know, uh, and, and now with the Trump administration, I mean, there's been a lot of you know reactionary policies and efforts to sort of dismantle some of the civil rights-focused policies of. The previous administration, but there's also been sort of just a general retreat, I guess, uh, from the the Department of Ed. So as teachers and trying to work on um, grassroots mobilization, I mean, is there a focus on kind of the national picture and national policy? And I guess as we're looking towards 2020, I mean, should there be?
4: One of the things I thought was really interesting about this particular strike was almost all the Democratic candidates for president came out in some way to support us, which was not the case in 2012. Um, yeah. You know, Obama was running for reelection, didn't want to have anything at all to do with us. In fact, his former chief of staff was the person doing the attacking. Um, so this time around, though, we had, um, you know, Bernie Sanders came out to the, oh he came out to negotiations before even the, the, the strike had started. Uh, Elizabeth Warren came to the strike line. Um, Castro tweeted out some support. Joe Biden called called in and gave, uh, gave in some support. Like Pretty much it was just like Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar, I think, who didn't. But it was almost like they were competing well, with now each other. We Yang didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yang, Yang, well, good. yeah. I'm true. shocked. Uh, Yang and, and Williamson, I don't think, did either. Um, <laughs> but all the top contenders, though, they they all yeah. saw like – it was really interesting to me. Like they did not feel like they should fear the mayor of the third biggest city in the country. Like Chicago has a huge voting base and it it almost seemed to me like a lot of people who are fans of Lori Lightfoot would also be fans of like an Elizabeth Warren, for example, but even Warren came out and said, you know, we deserve a good deal. She, she marched with us. Um, so it's, it's, it was very surreal for me to watch like all of these, um, these Democratic uh, hopefuls, like asking us to dance um, over the course of the strike?
6: Uh, You know, actually, I was struck by the fact that Lightfoot's comments about Medicare for all, she really channeled Amy Klobuchar. Uh No, she did. She did. It was exactly what Amy Klobuchar had said. And that that really, I thought, well, maybe it's something in the drinking water in the Midwest. But (laughs) there's something else going on that, that I think we need to be aware of, which is that all of the Democrats and the teachers' unions have been um, supporting something called social impact bonds, mm. uh, pay for success, which, uh, you know, is just proceeding uh, at this chilling pace. Um, and it's, it's not on the radar uh, of most people who are activists, but it's extraordinarily important. You know, so on the one hand, we have the project of privatization proceeding apace with yeah. pushing vouchers, pushing charter schools, the defer agenda, agenda that mm-hmm. Cory Booker, you know, is all about. Democrats and for education they, reform. Democrats for education reform that Booker yeah. and uh, the Obama administration uh, were yeah. all about, right? So we have we have that wing of the Democratic Party, but then we have the other wing of the Democratic Party that is aligned with and supporting this relationship between Silicon Valley and the investment banks Mm -hmm. about privatizing education through use of these, what's called social impact bonds that are part part of the new federal legislation that replaced No Child Left uh, Left Behind, ESSA, right? Mm -hmm. And nothing is being said about that. So I think that it's, while it's good and it's important that Biden and Harris and Warren and Sanders have come out in support of the CTU strike and of teachers. And I think that they have done that in part because of Red for Ed. Mm. Red for Ed really turned the tide of, of this anti-teacher, of this teacher bashing. It just got rid of it. It made it, mm. it just wiped it off the agenda. It just changed the narrative about teachers. Now teachers yeah. are good people, Right. <laughs> eight, 8 years ago we were child molesters, greedy <laughs> yeah. public servants but uh-huh. for Ed just demolished that just, it,
5: Now a striking teacher that. is going to be lieutenant governor Yeah <laughs> right
6: now we're now we're sacrificing our lives for children and we should be well compensated and everybody has a cousin or a mother or a sister or a daughter who is a teacher and therefore they know <laughs> they know what's going on in the schools but at the same time that that's occurring Something else is occurring, which is that the bipartisan project is continuing. It's continuing, mm-hmm. and if you look at the Senate vote, I have to say, when Harris announced her um, her new plan for teacher pay, I started doing some research on her record as a senator, and um, I think his name is Scott Stump. Everybody, all the Democrats and Sanders. Voted to, and he was Trump's nominee for the Department of Education, and they all—I looked at the votes—they all voted for him, all the Democrats and Sanders. And if you go back and you look at the uh, at this guy's connections, he's connected to this nexus between Silicon Valley and the investment banks that are um, um, that are pushing the use online learning and computer software that does data mining and surveillance mm. right so the bipartisan project is not dead it's it's under the radar it's been changed it's been challenged but it is not dead and and uh, uh, Trump is you know, Trump and DeVos are advancing that, but Democrats, whether they know it or not, are supporting it.
5: The Janus case, which we mentioned earlier, was supposed to kill public sector unions, right? This was just supposed to be the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead, we're seeing waves of organizing and strikes. And I was just writing this week in a piece that isn't up yet that Instead of killing unions, Janice has sort of made the CTU's model not only a good idea for winning games, but really necessary for survival. So I'd love your thoughts both on how that is important and also just like why Janice hasn't been the death blow that we thought it was going to be or maybe feared it was going to be.
6: Wow, that's a
4: good question. I'm going to let Kenzo take that first. Well, it's definitely like the Janus case lit a fire under all unions. I would say even Mm -hmm. the really bureaucratic ones um, held organizing drives. And, you know, one thing I I saw in a lot of locals in Illinois was, you know, that was taken up by like the most active members. So I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, this could definitely have – I mean, radical might be too big of a word, but like almost an effect of creating more and more militancy within Mm -hmm. the unions. The fact that, you know, people are having these conversations like before, like when I first became a, a union member 16, 17 years ago, Someone said, sign this card. And then I had to kind of learn a lot of stuff on my own. Now it's Mm -hmm. like people are having to have these conversations. They're actually having to like sell, not sell, but they actually have to organize them into the union and not just say, sign this card. You're paying, you know, agency fee anyway. So I think this is going to, you know, it's, it's, we're seeing already, you know, it becoming stronger. Like we had 30,000 in the streets during the first big March of the CTU strike. You know, we had 10,000. In 2012, like people are becoming very militant um, and willing to do what it takes uh, for fairness um, now.
6: I agree with what Kenzo has said. I think there's another story here, though. And um, if you look at what's going on in Wisconsin, for instance, Mm -hmm. if you look what went on, uh, those numbers were not good. You know that the the anti-union legislation that they Mm -hmm. passed decimated the unions. It really decimated yeah. them. They lost an enormous number of members, and they lost a yeah. lot of ground. And the other thing is that, you know, the unions responded uh, by laying off staff and by tightening their mm-hmm. belts. All the unions yeah. did that. But, you know, at the same time that, that there's Janice, there's also Trump's election mm. and the kind of um, popular resistance uh, that Trump's election triggered, uh-huh. So I think that while Janice uh, probably weakened public employee unions outside of the major cities, yeah. um, I think that it didn't weaken, for the most part, it didn't weaken um, a lot of teachers' unions. Yeah. And the reason it didn't is that teachers' unions have always had a very high density. People Mm. just automatically, I think that has to do with the origins of teachers' unions and professional organizations. People who are not necessarily uh, pro-union join the teachers' unions. When people are in teacher preparation programs, incidentally, the Mm. um, NEA has college-level NEA chapters. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason that uh, um, they try to get rid of, and they've done it pretty successfully, university based teacher education because it socializes people mm-hmm. to have values and ideals as part of the profession and the union is understood um, um, in a lot of, in cities especially. the union is understood as continuing that legacy. What read for Ed, has shown us is that you don't need to have collective bargaining to organize as workers and both <laughs> the right and the left forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. See, yeah. they thought it too. They thought that they were going to kill labor with Janice. Yeah. What they yeah. didn't realize is that you may that the union apparatus is different from workers' organization. So that's that's what Janice makes me think about, that difference Mm -hmm. between union organization, collective bargaining, workers' organization, all those things Mm -hmm. and how they're different. Mm -hmm. But... Obviously, they didn't succeed in destroying us, did they? Um, So last episode, we did the same
5: sort of conversation with a UAW worker, with Ruth Milkman, talking about the sort of limitations of the GM strike. Mm -hmm. So what can private sector unions learn from what CTU and other teachers unions have done?
4: You know, I would say definitely union democracy. That's something that I've seen lacking in a lot of private sector unions. And I think that um, is, is definitely impacting like, you know, why would someone join an organization that's going to extract dues from them, but not actually give them any voice? So I would definitely say that's something that needs to be done. There needs to be rank and file rebellions in these private sector unions. Um, and also private sector unions should feel comfortable bargaining for the common good as well. Um, you know, capitalism is what puts all these divisions between what's private and what's public sector, but we're all workers and we all have needs and we all live in communities. Um, And, you know, if a company takes like a lion's share of business of a small town, then um, they should be fighting for for good schools as well. They should be fighting for all the things that impact that community. Um, So those would be my two big pieces of advice, I'd say, for folks in the private sector.
1: Bargaining for the common good, has that so far been largely a public sector phenomenon? Yes.
4: Yes.
6: Yes. Every I think I believe everybody who's on the uh, the board there, you know, and they announce it. I think SEIU yeah. and AFT and yeah. EA. I think everybody is. Uh, I'm not sure if there is anybody from Ask Me. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think it's um, which which you know which is understandable because you yeah. your public your yeah. public workers. I I, I want to say this though about the private sector, um, yeah. the private sector unions and the AFL CIO. That that statistic that. Only seven percent of work, less than seven percent of workers Less than seven are- percent, yeah. Yeah, that is staggering. That is really staggering. Mm-hmm. That is a labor movement that's almost close to being destroyed. R- really, really, that's what yeah. it means, and I—it's breathtaking. And I, when when you think about that, uh, I, uh, what that suggests to me is, they just have to they have to adopt an entirely new mindset because they're being destroyed. The other thing that's really interesting to me is the way that um, the unionization of people who are in media, right? Why is it that in newspapers now, the Guild is having a resurgence? What's going on there? I'm writing a book about
5: it. (laughs) Well, there we go. Okay.
6: Hmm. I have theories,
5: Lois. I have theories. (laughs) Well, I want
6: to hear them because that, to me... We we are seeing the resurgence of labor, but yeah. we're not seeing the resurgence of labor in auto, And yeah. for instance. And I yeah. I maintain, I really think that when you look at something like, for instance, the UAW defeats in the South, mm-hmm. you have to talk about racism. We cannot yeah. organize the South by organizing it industry by industry. And it has to be done on a different p- basis, on the basis that the CIO did it. And that was yeah. talking about racism, right? We have to talk yeah. about it, even though that means we're not going to win. We may not win a campaign. Well, they lost two anyhow, for heaven's sakes.
0: Yeah. That was Kenzo Shibata. CTU Teacher, Bargaining Team Member, and Lois Wiener, teacher, education professor, consultant, and author of many things, including the excellent The Future of Our Schools. We'll put links to their work and more at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. It's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. What the hell is ultra working and why would anyone do it? I found out this week in a piece at Vice titled I saw the gig economy's bleak future during a 96 hour work marathon by Josh Gabbert Doyle. Apparently ultra working is a startup that sells work. Well, it sells a technique that it sells, says will make you better at working or more productive or something. But as Josh writes, techniques for better work usually just translate into more and harder work. He writes, quote, the time management method is meant to develop what co-founder Kai Zhao calls mental ergonomics. It's virtual co-working in 30 minutes on, 10 minute off work cycle spiced with a self-reflection spreadsheet. The startup claims that people who use ultra workings methods have seen gains of two to four times their normal productivity activity. During these marathon sessions, there's no collective task or project. Instead, you pay money to enjoy the luxury of joining a large Zoom call where people are meant to keep each other focused. The stairs of other people, what ultra-working calls social accountability, are meant to replicate the discipline of the traditional workplace. You can come and go as you please during the marathon, and no one stays consistently online for four days, but the point is to log on for large chunks of time in a state of productive bliss." End quote. Mental ergonomics. Yeah. So Josh used himself as a guinea pig to test out the system and called it my absolute nightmare vision of working from home. The ultra-working sessions are non-stop, since, after all, freelance work never stops, and with the global economy, it aims to appeal to all over the world. So the one Josh logged into began at midnight. He writes, quote, When the call finally went live and the moderator of the first session started speaking, I couldn't hear him. My end of the video conference was glitching, and all I saw was his mouth moving, along with the faces of the other strangers participating in the session. When his audio came in, I realized that the mic on my end of the conference call was muted and would remain muted for the duration of the marathon. My screen was a panopticon of bedrooms, coffee shops, and co-working spaces, with freelancers participating from around the world. An ultra-working moderator ushered participants through a cycle of concentrated work, followed by a 10-minute break, when we filled in a spreadsheet, tracking tasks, distractions, and energy levels." So even when you take a break, you do more work. Work about work. Work to track your work. During the breaks, workers also get enlisted, apparently, to tell the crowd on the call about how much they love work or something. Josh continues, quote, The tech world is rolling out tools, some flashy, some surprisingly basic, that try to offer the solitary worker a sense of managerial control once provided by conventional workplaces. Ultra-working fills the void of productivity and time management that used to be filled by simply working in a team for an employer with a clear sense of whether you'd still have work next week. In the process, they've laid stake to the future of work. And here I was thinking that the thing I liked the best about freelancing was not having a boss. Now we can pay to have a virtual boss supervise our work. But Josh does see a few moments of potential in the midst of the mess. He writes, quote, Midway through the four-day work marathon, the structure breaks down, at least briefly. One of the workers invited to speak about their experience during a scheduled break used their time to talk about their struggles with mental health, manic episodes in particular confessing that a fixation on work as a freelancer has contributed to those tendencies. Suddenly, the neglected chat function on the side of the conference call, filled with messages from other participants who confess similar difficulties with ADHD, depression, a host of mental health conditions that intersect with their work life. Strangers start dropping their emails into the chat, offering to discuss more offline. For a brief moment amid the work, the space fills with collective potential. When the 10-minute break is up, everyone puts their heads and gets back to their respective tasks as if it never happened, end quote. Mostly, though, he wonders if these techniques might, rather than marathon work, help people compartmentalize it better. The problem with freelance work, after all, is that it bleeds into everything. I jumped up from a dinner with colleagues last night to take the call that was the interview you heard earlier in today's show with Kimberly Crutchfield from Little Rock. As a journalist, I have to do my reporting when it works for my sources, and there's not too much that a work marathon can do about that. But on a recent trip to the UK, I sat in on the session about the four-day work week at The World Transformed and began to wonder how, in an increasingly freelance and project-based world, I would even begin to shorten my weeks. These are real questions for the future, and they are, in a weird way, what these work startups are grappling with. Even at the moment, those startups seem geared towards making you work more and harder rather than less often and more collectively.
1: My pick for ARG! is Make Antitrust Democratic Again, by Sandeep DePaul and Sandeep Vaheesan in The Nation. The U.S. prides itself on being a free market system that values competition, but the reality today is very different in the Wild West of big finance and corporate consolidation. Sandeep Dupal and Sandeep Vaheesan argue that corporate consolidation across every sector of the economy, from social media companies to big ag, is driving up inequality and undermining democracy. Corporate monopolies and oligopolies, they argue, quote, create a vicious cycle, transferring wealth upward and moving the disposable income and wages of the many into the investment accounts of the few, unquote. Of course, we know this. For several generations, antitrust law has been the government's primary tool to break up big conglomerates that are seen as holding too much market power, and occasionally... They've used it. Generally, however, since the days of Teddy Roosevelt, antitrust law has been wielded through the legal framework of defending consumers' interests, since monopoly control is generally seen as a path to unfair price increases and a lack of market competition, which lawmakers supposedly want to preserve because supposedly, in theory, A free market allows companies to compete on price and quality. Antitrust law hasn't generally incorporated labor rights because its central logic has historically been focused on the consumer experience and small or smaller businesses. But Paul and Vaheesan take a different approach, framing antitrust law reform as a vehicle for coping with the inevitable next economic crisis in order to, quote, redistribute economic resources and power to the people. A more equitable distribution of income and clout would make our economy more stable and less susceptible to sudden downturn as well as empower all citizens." If we're going to revisit the basic framework of antitrust law for the 21st century, we need to stop thinking about it wholly in terms of consumers and prices. Today the danger posed by corporate consolidation isn't just monopoly, but monopsony. That term means the concentration of the labor market under the control of a few major employers giving them outsized control over wages and working conditions. We've seen over the past several years how communities suffer as consumers and workers are stuck under the hegemony of one big box retailer, or the one Amazon warehouse in town, which turns out to be the main source of jobs as well as the main source of retail commerce. The current antitrust legal regime doesn't fully tackle corporate consolidation on a structural level, and in fact it ends up being part of the problem because the law is so riddled with loopholes and tends to undermine small businesses which can't compete on price and need to be shielded from much larger conglomerates. One example of this, the authors point out, is the gig economy, which is running on a class of workers who are systematically excluded from federal labor protections and also strafed by antitrust law. Paul and V. argue, quote, This sector has become a significant source of employment, albeit precarious and badly paid, since 2008. And as far as antitrust law is concerned, large corporations like Uber and Lyft have enjoyed the freedom to set prices for hundreds of thousands of putatively independent drivers. Meanwhile, the gig workers do not have the right, under existing antitrust law, to organize to raise their wages and demand better terms of work. When Uber engages in price coordination, it's legal. When gig workers do, they're considered to be acting collusively. Not only is this a legal paradox, it is also the making of economic disaster. The problem is the tendency among regulators to fetishize competition. The only role of government under this logic is to restrain big business only to the extent that you can allow market forces to flourish, as if a freer market will guarantee the most effective and fair distribution of corporate power and wealth. But the problem with monopoly capital isn't just monopoly, it's also the capital. The authors go on to argue, quote, Currently, antitrust law's official purpose is to promote competition, yet it uncritically allows and even blesses the economic coordination that takes place within big firms. Demanding that antitrust law promote only competition is not a tenable solution. Competition is not categorically good. The fact is both pernicious and socially desirable forms of competition and cooperation exist, unquote. In other words, a bunch of Uber drivers getting together and organizing to go on strike are not colluding in a cartel, they're acting like a union. There's a distinction between community collectivism in the service of advancing economic democracy and corporate collectivism in the service of maximizing profit. Yet anti-racketeering laws have been used to crack down on labor actions and break up unions. Meanwhile, mega-mergers among huge telco firms and media conglomerates are routinely given the green light. Not only does this signify the obsolescence of the original antitrust regime, it also reflects the degree of corporate capture that has become endemic in many regulatory agencies and institutions that are supposed to serve as the public's primary safeguard against corporate abuse. But Paul and Vaheesan outline a vision for a different antitrust framework that prioritizes community needs and public good. For example, by allowing electricity consumers to collectivize their purchasing power in order to check energy industry monopolies. They say antitrust policy should be reformed to, quote, "...progressively allocate economic coordination rights, both by restricting the ability of large corporations to control and dominate the other market participants, and by allowing workers and small firms to organize or counter-organize. It should seek to balance power in society rather than exacerbate existing imbalances." Of course, we need much more than a reformed antitrust law to really redistribute economic resources equitably. But at least authorities would be able to target the law against the real culprits. As workers today become more interested in engaging in labor organizing and political mobilization inside and outside of work, and politicians seek to restrain Facebook and Amazon from becoming too ubiquitous and powerful, we need a government that can break corporate power in order to create necessary civic space. Not necessarily for the purpose of making the economy more competitive per se, but for the purpose of making the economy fairer. And that does it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to Natasha for making us sound good, as always. We'll be back in another two weeks. In the meantime, you can get all of our archived episodes at descentmagazine.org. That's where you can also become a sustaining member of this podcast and subscribe to Descent Magazine. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Get in touch if you are an angry Googler, if you are a member of the gig economy thinking of going on strike. If you are a part of the hashtag delete instacart family, we want to hear from you too. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.